Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a wonderful day so far. Uh, I've got David Wheaton coming up in just a minute. We're going to continue our discussion on the book of Genesis. I don't know. We started this uh, six months, seven months ago, maybe. And I haven't talked to David for a month, so I'm very anxious to catch up with him. And we're going to talk about how Genesis is the most relevant for today. And I think we're going to get into the sacrifice of Isaac uh, and... um, the death of Sarah today. It's going to be fascinating. I think of Abraham in his elder years when God basically said, I'm going to send you out. And he said, okay, I will go. By the way, where am I going? And God said, just go. I'll tell you later. And then uh, Abraham said, well, what direction? Just wander. (laughs) God says, well, I'll give you a child. Abraham was basically, well, how is that going to happen? God says, "I'll, I'll tell you later. Just wait. And then his son is born. God says, I want you to sacrifice your child. Abraham says, why? God says, well, I'll tell you later. Abraham lived an extraordinary life, man of great faith. And we have lots to learn from the book of Genesis. And David Wheaton uh, is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can always go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David. Of course, he is a regular guest on the show and a dear friend and always glad to talk to him. David, welcome. Hey, good to be with you today, Bill. You get a little bit of rest and relaxation with the family? We did. We had a really nice vacation up north and uh, such a fun place to go. And we're back and, you know, can't believe summer is already coming to a close. I hate to even say that. And who knows what the school year is going to be like with everything going on. But we're uh, we're back home now. It's hard to put this summer into perspective because we didn't watch Wimbledon this July and we're not looking forward to the U.S. Open. So there's all kinds of landmarks that we have throughout our summer that sort of punctuate a normal summer. So we didn't get any of that. You're right. It's been a very, I mean, the most unusual time of my life and I'm 51 years old. So half a century, you know, into this, it's something happens that you've never seen happen before in your lifetime. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Are you ready to jump back into uh, Genesis? I am all set and looking forward to it. Cool. All right. I think we're up to about 22, maybe chapter 22. Does that sound about right? Yep, Genesis 22, and this this is one of the most, I think, powerful chapters, uh, thought-provoking chapters yeah. in, in all of Scripture, as you mentioned in your intro there, with, with Abraham being told to sacrifice his son Isaac. Oh, Pretty my, amazing. My, and why would God tell him to sacrifice his one and only son that he waited forever to have, who he loved more <laughs> than a, you could imagine? That, that's exer- right. We've been talking about in recent interviews, you know, how long it took for the promised son uh, for Abraham and Sarah to have Isaac. You know, it was just years and years. And finally, after much doubt and laughing, and this is not going to happen, this is impossible, finally at age 100 and age 90 for Sarah, they have this son named Isaac. And it's just an incredible fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Remember, he was promised this covenant with God about that you're going to be blessed, you're going to have land, you're going to have a seed, and you're going to be a great nation, and it's going to come through a son named Isaac. And so now we open up Genesis chapter 22, and you just have to read the first two verses because it's just, you sit there and think, 
well, wait a second. How, why? How? How does this? How would God possibly tell Abraham to do something like this? It says, now it came about after these things. Now, this is about 20 years after now the birth of Isaac. Now, Isaac's like 20 years old, maybe a little older than 20 years old at this time. So this is not a seven-year-old or a four-year-old boy. Not that it matters, but many years have passed now. It says, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And here's the command in verse two. God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, which is modern day Jerusalem, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And you just look at this and think, well, how can this be? God, God never, God is completely against uh, child sacrifice. All the, the godless nations of the day did that. The Jews are to be different. They were never to do that. And here we have God telling Isaac, uh, uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And so what is this? Well, it says, right, what this is. This isn't a temptation, like a solicitation to sin or evil. God never tempts us. The Bible says that, no, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. That's James 1.13. So this is not a temptation to do something wrong. This is actually, like it says in verse 1, it's a test. It's a test. And if you get the, the definition for the word test, it's a procedure to establish the quality of something. In other words, God's test here for Abraham is to refine him, to strengthen him, to grow him uh, in his love and fear of God, to make Abraham, and really by extension us, when I were tested, more useful for God. So temptation is like for our destruction. That's what Satan does to us. God does tests for our growth. And so that's what's taking place here. Abraham, as you remember, Bill, uh, you know, many, many years ago, remember that that famous passage in Genesis 15 where God gives the covenant to Abraham, and then the, Abraham's response is, Abraham believed God, and God credited to him as righteousness. That's when Abraham was saved by faith, and now that faith is going to be tested with what, what Abraham's going to do with this command from God about sacrificing his son, Isaac. Well, David, it seems so incomprehensible. Fortunately for readers like us, it doesn't take us too many verses to realize what happened. But imagine what it was like for Abraham when he was told, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering yeah. on the mountains. You don't, you don't even have to have a son to, to realize how incomprehensible is. this is. I mean, it just, again, so seemingly at odds with God's nature to go sacrifice your son, not only have the promised son, and, and then the way the way God puts it, it's just it's intended to have maximal impact. He gives four different things. Take now your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and then and then the name of the son, Isaac. You know, just to to create maximal impact <laughs> and emotional right. response from 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 Abraham and go sacrifice and offer him there as a burnt offering. I mean, I, I think this this is debatable, but apart from Christ's obedience, the test that he went through when he was on earth, I don't think there's a greater test in all of Scripture than to be told to sacrifice your son, your only son, the son that you loved, after waiting 25 years for his birth, after him being the promise of the covenant. Uh, this is something unheard of for God. And so this is one of the, I think, the greatest tests that we see in all of Scripture that Abraham's told to do. I think the relevance for us today, as we're talking about how relevant Genesis is, is that 
we not only have God's word uh, spoken, like Abraham was spoken to by God. God somehow communicated it, whether it was through a dream or a vision or just a direct talking to Abraham. We did it. The Bible doesn't say. But we actually have God's clear word speaking to us today in the Bible. And so there are things in Scripture, like how to obey God, how to raise our children, have our marriages, how to interact with each other, that we have clear commands of God that are there as tests for us whether we are going to obey them. Is our faith real? Will there be actual evidence and action according to what we profess to be true? Mm -hmm. Now, David, a curious reader or a curious person who's unfamiliar with the Bible would say, oh my, what was Abraham's response to this test? Uh-huh. It's a it's an obvious question yeah. because we, we read verses one and two. Well, verse three gives the answer. And, and you might think, oh, he fell over and fainted. He he stayed up all night. He mm-hmm. couldn't sleep. Uh, he talked to his wife. He tried to delay. He tried to bargain with God. Well, maybe some of those things took place, but in, 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 the, in the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Scripture, that's not revealed. Verse three, literally the next verse, it says, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I mean— It's unbelievable. Yeah, there, there's no arguing or debating or what—like like he did, by the way, like he, like he tried to persuade God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sake of his nephew Lot. There was none of that here. It was just he heard from God and he was going to obey. There's no apparent hesitation— just rose early in the morning and went to go do what God has said. So what is he thinking? I mean, if he's having lots of doubts about this, it's certainly not apparent or recorded in Scripture. He didn't even delay. But actually, Bill, we actually do know what Abraham is thinking. If you flip forward to the New Testament, and this passage in Genesis 22 is is referenced in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, that, that chapter that gives, is you know, is known as kind of the Hall of Faith, not the Hall of Fame, but the Hall of Faith, showing notable people in Scripture who have really exhibited great faith in God. And it refers to Abraham in this particular test in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. We know what Abraham was thinking about when God tested him. It says, by faith, Abraham, again, by faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son— it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. And then here's the verse, verse 19. Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. In other words, Abraham's thinking, I'm going to go obey God. And obviously, God is just going to raise Isaac from the dead after I sacrifice him. That's what he's thinking. That's how much faith he has in God, because he knew that the, the covenant was going to come through Isaac. So he's thinking, wow, this is going to be amazing, apparently, that I'm going to sacrifice my son in obedience to God, and God's going to raise him from the dead. I mean, would that that we had this kind of faith and obedience to the clear commands of Scripture, uh, that we would be this faithful and this obedient as Abraham was? It's an amazing model of faith. I mean, even if he believed that God would raise him from the dead, the horror that a father would have to go through of the image of sacrificing his son. That, that's exactly right. Because he is in the hall of faith, um, my next question, David, is going to be about faith. I mean, this what what is faith? And maybe we'll take a short break and we come back. We'll talk about what is faith and maybe what isn't faith. Is that fair? That sounds great. That sounds great. David Wheaton is my guest, thechristianworldview.org. 
is the place to go to learn more about David. We'll be right back in just a minute. That makes me think of my friend David Wheaton. He's at the ChristianWorldview.org. Airs Saturday mornings on some other radio station. But that doesn't matter because it's awesome material. Can, we're talking about uh, the book of Genesis. We've been doing this for six or seven months and loving every minute of it. So, David, right before break, I, I asked you what is faith and what isn't faith? Yeah, that's an extremely key question because the way God wants to be approached is by faith. That, that's his test for us. In other words, he reveals who he is, how he wants to be approached, how he wants to be obeyed, and then the test for us is, are we going to believe, are we going to trust, are we going to have faith and act on those things that he's revealed? So, you know, the Bible gives a, a very clear definition of faith in that same chapter in Hebrews, that Hall of Faith chapter, right in verse 1, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. And in other words, it's it's the confidence assurance of what we that what God has revealed to us about himself, about our life, about the world, about the future, about salvation. It's 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 belief, it's trust in who God is and what he has revealed about himself. It says in that verse, it's the conviction of things not seen. So we can't hold God in our hand. We weren't there at the beginning to see God create the world. But faith is seeing that evidence, seeing the creation of the world, and realizing that there's creation, therefore there must be a creator. Uh, it's, and it says further on in that chapter, Hebrews 11, uh, chapters, uh, verse 7, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I think that's a very important verse. In other words, you, you can't please God if you don't, have faith in who he is and what he's revealed. You must believe that he exists, first of all, and that you must believe that he actually rewards those who seek him. So again, faith is the the confident assurance, it's the conviction to believe, to trust, and obey what God has revealed in his word. It's believing that God exists, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. It's seeing creation and believing God is the creator, and, and a host of other things. It's believing God at his word, basically. But the opposite, what isn't faith, so you can maybe help to define what faith is by seeing what the opposite is. So this faith that is talking about in Scripture isn't a blind faith. It's not based on nothing. It's not just kind of like hopey hope faith, or maybe it's possibly going to happen, but it probably won't. It's not faith in unicorns. You know, that's something that there's no basis or foundation or evidence for. It's also not demanding signs. I will only believe that Jesus raised from the rose from the dead if I can put my fingers in his side, as Thomas said. That's not faith. Or it's not what the religious leaders said of when they crucified Christ and put him on the cross. Come down from that cross, and then we will believe you are the Son of God. That is the opposite of faith. They have plenty of reason and evidence to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God and Savior of mankind, and they still didn't have faith or belief. It's also not believing. Faith isn't believing that your good deeds somehow earn you salvation. That's not faith. Then you're putting faith in yourself, your own works, instead of Christ's work for you on the cross. So again, in summary, faith is believing and acting on what God has revealed about himself. 
that's what faith is. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about hope, I think it's such an important word and to make the distinction that it's not the kind of hope like, I hope it doesn't rain on Saturday because we have that picnic and I made all that potato salad. It's hope that is a certainty, that is an absolute fixed certainty. That's exactly right. It, it's it's a fixed certainty that something is going to happen, mm-hmm. although we can't necessarily see it happening. We can't hold it in our hands. And by the way, we may not be alive to actually see it happen. And you see that all throughout Hebrews 11, it said these people didn't see what they were promised, but they still had faith. I would encourage your listeners just to read Hebrews 11 sometime. It goes through some of the great characters in Scripture, including Noah and you know Adam, and of course Abraham is mentioned several times in that chapter about what true faith actually is. Mm-hmm. David, let's chat about Abraham and his reward for going through this test, this trial. Yeah, well, he, he passed the test, he sure and did. it's it's very dramatic how he passes it, because God doesn't release him from this test till literally he's holding the knife above his son's chest. Uh, and I think I think it's worth just reading a couple of verses here, Bill, if I may. It says Please. in verse 10 of, of 22, Genesis 22, so they, they get to the place of the sacrifice. Um, literally, Isaac's had to carry the wood for the sacrifice. At some, at some point, he finds out that he, in fact, is going to be the sacrifice— and interestingly enough, as an aside, Isaac doesn't resist or try to run away either. He he showed a lot of faith here as well. That's not brought out, but it shows that he's a 20-year-old man at this point. I mean, he could have overpowered probably his own father if he had wanted to, but he willingly surrendered to his father and was tied up and put on top of this wood uh, to be killed and have this burnt sacrifice. So that's an amazing kind of sub-story going on here. But anyway, it says in verse 10 that Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now, if you just get the picture of that, it's it's almost incomprehensible, raising a knife above the chest of mm. your son to kill him. I mean, it's very, very graphic and just uh, completely horrific to even think about. But, verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then in verse 13, then we see the, the issue of the, the substitutionary atonement, which pictures the gospel, what Christ did on our behalf. The substitutionary sacrifice comes in. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him there was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And and there's a whole picture of the gospel right there. We deserve to be sacrificed for our sin, but but God instead sent his son Jesus to earth to live a perfect life so he could be the perfect substitutionary sacrifice in our place so that God's uh, wrath and justice over our sin could be completely satisfied and fulfilled. And that's what you see here. Abraham passes the test. He's proven to have the faith that God requires of us. Uh, he, there's a reaffirmation of the covenant after this, of land and seed and blessing. He is the model for all people who would ever have faith is Abraham, because he believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Yeah, you're probably already answering my next question in advance here, David, but I'm starting oh, yeah. to, I'm starting to wonder about this, what happened with Abraham and Isaac and how this, uh, this account pictures the gospel. 
Well, yeah, even the lead up to it does. You know, I didn't read this part, but as they were, you know, going off on this journey with Abraham and Isaac and the two servants, it says that uh, Abraham or Isaac, just like Christ had to carry his own cross, Isaac was carrying the own the, the wood mm-hmm. that would eventually be intended to put him to death. And then eventually uh, Isaac's going to be on that wood as Christ was, and he's going to be the sacrifice like Christ was. And so there's an incredible foreshadowing here, a type or a picture uh, of what the sacrifice of Christ is like. And so, you know, as you fast forward to the gospel, you know, a couple thousand years after this, where God uh, just incredibly has, by the way, a son, an only son, a son whom he loves. Isn't that interesting Mm -hmm. that God has this only son whom he loves and he sends him to earth, but not only to take him to sacrifice, but he actually goes through with it and kills, has his own son, his, his own son sacrificed on that cross to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sin. Jesus paid the death penalty for us. And through his work on the cross, not our own good works, through trusting our faith in that work on our behalf, that God is willing to forgive us and to give us eternal life in heaven. That's the gospel, and it's pictured right here in the story of Abraham and Isaac. David, there's a, a beautiful presentation of this, and I, I, I get so excited when we start talking about this. I already want to jump into chapter 23. What, uh, what do we look forward to in 23? What significant uh, is there in the next chapter? Well, right afterwards, we've heard this for many chapters now. We've heard the story of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and it's been a beautiful account of their life and having Isaac and then this culmination, this climax point of almost sacrificing Isaac. Well, in the very next chapter, all of a sudden the story starts to come to an end with the death of Sarah, his wife, his beloved wife, and where she is to be buried. And she was buried in Hebron, which is or near Hebron, which is still a town in Israel today. And Abraham buys a piece of land in Israel. This is the he's lived there for I'm I'm guessing probably 35 years now, but has never has been just a camper, so to speak. He's never actually owned land, and this is the first time where Abraham buys a piece of land to bury Sarah and other. By the way, others would be buried there afterwards. Isaac would be buried there. Rebecca, Leah, and Jacob, other well-known. Uh, characters of the Jewish nation would be buried there. This is the first plot of land. In other words, a little bit of that promise of the covenant is coming true, where they now own a little piece of land in in Canaan, which would become Israel, and then someday they'd be taken down to, of course, Egypt and come back and conquer the promised land. This is the beginning of that. Yeah, it's a, I love this study. I'm, I'm learning so much, and I so look forward to when you come on and talk about how Genesis is so relevant for today. It is. It's it's really it's amazing how the first book of the Bible, you know, written, you know, of, of a time six thousand years ago mm-hmm. has so much relevance for believers and really all people today. Yeah. Well David, I'm already looking forward to our next time together. Thanks so much for doing the show. Blessings to you and your family. And same to you, Bill. Yep. David Wheaton has been my guest, host of the Christian Worldview. You can go to the Christianworldview.org. You can hear his podcast, buy his books, or read whatever he's written. It's always excellent. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Pastor Adam Weber will be with us from Embrace Church in Sioux Falls.
Rebecca, how long has it been? Four weeks or so we've been talking to Adam Weber every week? This may be week five. Week five, awesome. And I think this is uh, the conclusion to our our little regular meeting with Adam because his new book comes out August 25th. It's called Love Has a Name, Learning to Love the Different, the Difficult, and Everyone Else. And we wanted to talk a lot about that book prior to it being released, and it's coming out on the 25th. But Adam is a guy that I, a pastor of Embrace Church in Sioux Falls, and I must say, one of the reasons I really like Adam because he's weird, but he's good weird. <laughs> and there's a difference between weird and good weird. Adam, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. What is, what's, what's the key? What's the key difference between bad well, weird and good weird? Yeah, you you, uh, you do what I call you break patterns. So instead of sitting in a coffee shop, you sit in a lawn chair at a busy corner. That's weird, but it's good That's weird. Perfect. That. It's good weird. That's good weird. No, I'm doing fantastic. It's been just a wonderful day. Life is good. I'm sad about this coming to an end. Well, I might just start call. I might just start calling in. <laughs> you're, you're welcome to do that. Um, anytime you call, I promise you'll get my voicemail. <laughs> That's exactly right. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. I had a nice conversation with uh, a, a lovely listener that is in the Sioux Falls area, and I recommended your church, and she got all excited. She's hopefully going to get there. Um, are you guys open for business? We are open for business. That's amazing. I'm humbled that you would even think about pointing her this direction. That's well, pretty fantastic. Her name is Joyce, and she said she doesn't really have a church community right now, and I brought up you right away. and. And I don't know if she has a way of getting there or not, but I said, knowing Adam, he'll figure out a way to get you picked up and brought to church. Yeah. Oh, I, I have no doubt that I will cross paths with Joyce some way, somehow. So I look forward to meeting her. Cool. Now, um, you've got a big uh, anniversary coming up on Friday, don't you? Isn't it like uh, your wedding anniversary? Yeah, 16 years of being of being married. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. And we'll talk to Becky next and find out, you know, her side of the story. <laughs> yeah, that's, ex- that's exactly right. That She actually should be the person that you should be talking with right now and just saying, let me tell you about loving this man. Well, it's I'm, not easy, okay? I, it's I, not easy. I'm okay with hanging up with you and calling her. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I met, I met Becky. Uh, it, we actually have a really cool story. So I filled in for a pastor up in Wapiton, North Dakota, the summer before my senior year of college. And uh, I ended up marrying the pastor's daughter. Oh, wow. The, the, whole, the whole summer, I was positive she didn't like me or borderline hated me. And what I found out is that was actually the silent treatment was her saying that she was interested in me. Okay. So I, I was not, I was never good at signals or the, or the whole dating thing. Mm-hmm. It was actually her, her mom on my very last Sunday there pulled my mom aside and said, why is your son not pursuing my daughter? She's interested. And uh, so that's how I found out that my wife was interested in me, but we got married uh, so we started dating in October of my senior year of college. We got married that next summer. Uh, well, I guess when you know, you know. And um, going into marriage, as most people who are going into marriage, I was completely clueless. I thought marriage was all about someone loving you, saying nice things to you, love making. You know, like uh, my, my love language is touch, touch, words, touch. And so I was like, that's what married life is, right? Mm. I quickly found out. I quickly found out that's not the case. So, uh, folks who are dating, that's not the case. 
and I began to, to learn what does it look like to love somebody when the feelings aren't there? Uh, what does it look like to love somebody when you don't want to love somebody? Well, Jesus, near the end of his time on this earth, before he went to the cross, he was with his disciples, he was eating a meal, and midway through the meal, we're told that he got up and he took off his outer garment, he wrapped it around his waist, he got a basin of water, and he began to wash the, the disciples' feet. And uh, in those 12 disciples was a guy named Judas who would end up betraying Jesus. And yet Jesus got up, and, and at the end he said, do you know what I've done for you? Like, do you know what I've done for you? And it's, it's kind of this last scene before heading to the cross that Jesus says, let me show you what love really looks like. What, what, is, what does love do? Love washes feet. And again, here's Jesus. He's our Savior, fully God, fully man. And he's like, I want to show you what it looks like to love another person. Get a towel out. Get on your knees. Take the role of a servant and wash someone's feet. Now, I don't like feet in general. I'm like, can we just wash hands? Like, can we like do like social distance, high five, social distancing, like washing feet? I'll do that. That's cool. But it, there's this powerful, again, example and model that Jesus shows to us. And I think, I think for those of us who um, maybe have a leadership position, it's like, well, the last person I'm, who should wash feet is the boss. The last person who should wash feet is the person in charge. And yet Jesus is like, no, I turn this upside down. You think you're high and mighty? You need to wash feet even more. You think this person doesn't deserve it? You need to wash their feet. And um, again, it's this powerful picture and I found that, that uh, a marriage and a good marriage and a good friendship even, for those who aren't married, a good friendship, any good relationship, at the center of it is two people who are willing to, to take their outer garment off, get a basin of water, and wash one another's feet. Mm. That's a strong image. Um, and I think when feet were washed, it was done by the, the lowest of servants, uh, so for Jesus to get down and wash the disciples' feet was unimaginable to his disciples that night, and yet he did it. Well, the, yeah. Yeah. The, well, the disciples, the disciples even challenged Jesus and said, no, 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 you can't do this. And Jesus like, unless you wash my feet, uh, you let me wash your feet, like, you, you're, you can't follow me. And then they're like, well, just wash everything then. Like, do everything, you know? Again, it's even them. They were like, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. And I'll never forget a seminary professor of mine. He said, there's an aspect of the heart of Jesus. There's an aspect of God's heart that we'll never fully understand until we serve one another. Specifically, we serve the person that should serve us, again, an org chart or relationship role, or we serve the person who doesn't, doesn't deserve it. That's when we come to understand a, a piece of the heart of Jesus and a piece of the heart of God. And I, I think, I think it's, uh, I'm always shocked by how I, how I struggle with insecurity one moment and then pride and ego the next. In the moments of struggle with pride and ego, as followers of Jesus, our very first reaction should be, I need to, again, putting this in quotes, I need to wash someone's feet. Mm. I, I'm starting to think that, I'm starting to think that I'm, I should write my own headlines. I need to wash someone's feet. I'm starting to think that I'm better than other people. I need to wash feet. I think I'm, I think I'm more valuable than this person because I make more money or because I have a bigger title. Those are the moments where it's like God would challenge us. No, you need to wash feet is what you need to do. You need to serve someone who has nothing to offer you in return. Mm. Adam, how does Becky, your wife, after 16 years, respond to you when you are selfish? 
it does not go over very well. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, okay, um, well, I'm going to pray for your soul. She doesn't say that, but I see, I can feel it from her. <laughs> and no, it doesn't go, it doesn't go well. I mean, it, we, you, both of us in those moments, if she's doing the same thing as two broken humans, what we normally do is we dig in our heels. And it's like, well, you're not going to serve me. I'm not going to serve you. Mm. You think you're better than me? I'm not going to, well, I'm better than you. And at some moment, one of us, and God, God would, would we be the first to get to this place? I pray that for every single person listening. Would we be the first person to say, I'm sorry? The first person to say, I'll do it this time. The first person to say, I don't, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like loving you. You're hard to love, but I'm going to love you right now in this moment. I pray that we'd be, we'd be the first, because when there's pride and ego, nothing happens. But on the flip side of that, when you serve somebody, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your boss and you serve an employee, whether you serve somebody who's, who's younger than you and you feel like, gosh, you should be serving me. There's something so powerful about that, that, that moves a person's heart and all of a sudden they begin to soften. It may not happen right away. Someone, sometimes we might even get taken advantage of, but when we begin to do that, something powerful happens. Mm. What happens, Adam, if you go through a season where your heart grows a little cold towards your spouse? Oof, that I think, uh, and I, I think that's more often the case than not. And I know, honestly, during this this COVID season, I think a lot of marriages are struggling. I'm seeing more of that in and through the doors of, of the church here than any other time that I've been a pastor. So that's okay. that's so evident and prevalent. I think a couple different things. Uh, I think if you haven't been doing it, begin to pray for your spouse and um, begin to pray for God, God, God's blessing on them. Specifically, if you don't want to love them, begin to pray that, that for their job, begin to pray for peace in their life. So pray for them and also pray for yourself. I think, I think when, when we're close to Jesus, we can't help but notice the moments when we're just being a jerk, you know, to our spouse. When we're close to Jesus, we can't help but notice that, gosh, we're really nagging. We're really condescending to our, sp- to our husband, to our wives. Like, when we get close to Jesus, gosh, I'm really bitter. I'm jaded. I have all these hard feelings towards them. I, I think, so I think pray for our spouse. Pray for ourselves. Pursue Jesus ourselves. Make sure we're not pointing fingers and, and trying to take the speck out of our spouse's eye. I think another thing... Um, are we making the relationship a priority? Um, I, 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 I never cease to be amazed, and I'm guilty of this too, of all the things we'll do for our kids. We'll sign them up in 17 different things. They're involved in all this kind of things. Quick side note, mom and dad, most of that, unless you happen to have a kid that's going to be an NFL player, none of that's going to matter. The greatest gift you can give your kids is a good marriage. Even more than a good education, and I'm a huge education person. My mom's a principal. Oh, wow. Even more than them being well-rounded and, and whatever, more than that is a healthy relationship. And so what would it look like to begin dating our spouse again, to begin going out of our way to, to think about them? Um, oftentimes, and I'm guilty of this too, I put my job before my marriage. And I set that on the back burner and my, my career's going well, and then I'm wondering why my marriage isn't going well. And you can, it's, it's, it, this is going to be hard for some people to believe. You can actually be successful at your job and your marriage at the same time. And I would argue that a, that a healthy, thriving marriage will actually help your job and your career. 
And so I think that, and then I, I think the other thing too that I would say, and this is specifically, I'm going to generalize here. I'm going to challenge the men on this. Um, go see a Christian counselor. Um, but I don't want to talk about my feelings. Well, do you want to talk to your kids about a failed marriage? If, you know, like, would you rather talk to a counselor than that? And, and again, that going to a counselor doesn't mean your, your marriage isn't going to come to an end. And also, if you've had a marriage that has come to an end, God's grace is sufficient. I mean, he covers us. And, and so I'm, I'm, there's no condemnation, Christ. But, but in those moments, I think we're just like, I don't want to talk about my feelings, and I'm just not really a guy who processes things. I'm kind of an internal processor. Well, for the sake of your marriage and for the sake of your family and your kids and their marriages, you might want to talk about your feelings. And so I, I would just really encourage people, um, even if you're at a place of having a wonderful, thriving marriage, uh, to go consider seeing a Christian counselor. Adam, I'd love for you to take a couple steps back. I love celebrating you and Becky and your 16 years coming up on Friday. It's just fun. It's playful. But I know there's a lot of listeners that have gone through the incredible pain of of having a relationship uh, involved in fidelity and heartbreak, and uh, they have parted ways with from that person. And there's people who have lost their spouse to death. And, of course, they're, they're hearing this wonderful story of Adam and Becky, and they're going, oh... Kind of, kind of lonesome for my my relationship, or I'm wishing I had a different kind of relationship um, because my marriage ended. So I don't know where I'm going with this question, but I want encouragement for those listeners and hope. All right? Yeah. Let me take yeah. a little break. Adam Weber is my guest. His new book is Love Has a Name, Learning to Love the Different, the Difficult, and Everyone Else comes out on August 25. We'll be right back. with Pastor Adam Weber. I actually looked up your address and your phone number on the web. Just I thought I'd call your wife during the break, but it didn't give me it, it, it didn't it didn't give me your phone number. Which is probably probably saved you. That's the hand of God, right? That there. is the hand. Is your middle name Austin? <laughs> My middle name is Austin. Yeah, I got the right guy. I just don't have the right phone number. Oh, what? what in the world? I thought well during oh, the break man, maybe I I'll need... I'll call his wife, get him on. That'd be kind of fun. I need to go find what's on the World Wide Web. Oh, I know My you do. <laughs> I know. Who knew you were on it? All right. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? I love your story of your uh, your relationship with your wife Becky, but um, what if what if your story isn't that, and you've got heartbreak and and loss and and the pain of divorce? Yeah. So I want to I want to talk to for that person who's still married this quick first and feels like they have a dead marriage. I want us to say this is the hopeful side of following Jesus. It doesn't make sense. Our God specializes in bringing dead things back to life. And so if the two of you are still at the table and you're saying we want to make this work, I have seen marriages that even I thought was completely gone uh, be made new. I'll never forget a husband who had been cheated on many times say, I didn't think my, my marriage could ever be this good. 
So I, w- I want to say that word of hope. I also want to say in situations of abuse and infidelity, um, I would say there's a very different approach to you if that is your case. I mean, that is a completely different situation. And infidelity is mentioned actually in the, in the, in the Bible. And yeah, I've sat with, with, with women and men who it's been a repeated thing. And there's an addiction, habitual type type addiction to sex and, and brokenness, and that's a very different situation. I've mentioned it before. Gary Thomas, who wrote one of the best marriage books ever, also wrote a book called Toxic Relationships, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he talks about those. He talks about those types of situations. That's just a great resource for anybody who's in those situations. But for the person who's maybe gone through a divorce. Um, it's easy just to share just a quick word of encouragement. It's easy to feel like a second rate citizen in the church specifically. You kind of feel like damaged goods and, um, you know, like, Oh gosh, I don't want to tell somebody my story. And yet I feel like God is close to the brokenhearted. And again, there's no shame or condemnation in Christ. And he's able to somehow, some way make us brand new again. It's the same person who's dating and they've maybe crossed some boundaries sexually and all of a sudden they're like, but I've already done it. What's so cool about God? It's like, no, he's able to make your heart brand new. And so um, I, th- I think for, for my, my encouragement for anybody who's dating, whether you've been divorced or not, is really to make sure you're healthy. Because um, one of the hardest things as a pastor, and I've not been in that place, and so it's easy for me to say this, this from my place. I see a person who's gone through a broken marriage and then hops right into another marriage and it's just, it just seems like from the get-go, it's on, it's on shaky ground. And I, so I would just encourage, gosh, you don't want to go through that heartache again. And so how can you get as healthy as you possibly can? How can you work on your relationship with God? Maybe there's things that you need to deal with. Maybe the divorce wasn't even your fault. So I'm not saying you, you messed it up and you need to figure it out. That's not the case at all. Instead, it's like, okay, I want to, I want to work on this relationship. I think, I think one of the biggest things, and this is Gary Thomas when he when he wrote the book Sacred Marriage, a marriage wasn't created to make us happy. It was maybe created to make us whole. It wasn't make us to make us happy. It was it was created to make us holy. And, and it's like holy. You mean this marriage was created to make me more like Jesus? Yeah, because marriage is hard. And so is loving people. It's, it's again, Jesus, like, you want to love people? Uh, start washing feet. And so I think oftentimes we think marriage was created to make us, uh, make us whole or make us happy. And it's like, maybe, maybe it was created to make us holy, to make us more like Jesus. And I think that goes against the American dream. It's like, you're supposed to make me happy. You're supposed to satisfy me. You're supposed to fix me. And it's like, actually, only Jesus can do that. Yes, we can represent that when we can show glimpses of that to our spouse. But I think we have this, this broken interpretation of what marriage looks like. It's, it's not to make us happy or whole. Sure, hopefully those emblems, like uh, glimpses of those things take place in our life, but it was created to make us holy and, and to show us and teach us what it looks like to love somebody. And so that's hard. And for the lastly, for that person who's lost a spouse, I can't imagine the heartache of, 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 of losing a spouse to death. And, um, I mean, I, I, again, I get to walk. I'm such a, I'm so honored to go walk alongside of people who are in that. And I, I think that grieving process, just to encourage you, it's a lifelong process. It's not two seconds later and I got Jesus. I don't miss them. It's like, no, I'm hurting. And that's true for the person who's went through a divorce. 
I'm, I'm hurting. I'm broken. And yes, I have Jesus, but I'm also human. And um, I, I pray that those seasons, we would just run towards God and we, we'd find Jesus to be our comfort, our strength, our peace that per- surpasses all understanding. Adam, we have marching orders from Jesus to love one another. So the Christian answer is we always say we love one another, but what if we don't? And we're, uh, oftentimes we don't. And I think that's what makes us dependent on Jesus. Because Jesus said loving him and loving others is the most important thing. And so it's like, God, okay, that's the most important thing. Before being able to answer a Bible trivia game, before church attendance, you're looking at how I love you and how I love others. And the only way I can do that is by holding on to you. And so, Jesus, I need more of you to love my neighbor, to love my mom, my dad, my sister, my coworker who thinks differently. I need you in order to love my spouse because on my own, I keep, I keep record of of how they do at loving me versus how I do at loving them. On my own, I keep a record of every little mistake. And God, that's not what love is at all. And so I need your heart. I, I, need, I need your strength, your power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. I need that in order to love this person the way that you've called me to love them. On our, on our wedding day, one of the most powerful things, we do our vows and we exchange rings. And so we say words and promises to one another. But, but my favorite part is the pastor. It's called the wedding pledge. And that happens before the vows. And the people, the, the, the bride and groom, aren't facing each other. They're facing me. And it's, it's kind of a crazy thing. I'm a representat- representation of God in that moment. And so even before making vows to one another, what you're saying is, God, would you help me to love your son? Would you help me to love your daughter that you're crazy about the way that you would want me to love them? And I, I think that covenant that we make with God is even a bigger deal than the covenant we make with each other. We promise God to love this person till death do us part. And that is only possible. I found this in 16 years. I actually found it, I think, in 16 days of marriage, but now I know a little bit better. 16 Mm -hmm. years. It's impossible to love somebody unconditionally without Jesus. And so in order for a marriage to get better and better and better, we need Jesus more and more and more. Yeah. If if we're trying to love a difficult person, is it a good prayer to ask God for his strength to love that person? Yes. Yes. I, that should be the starting place Okay. to any, anybody, even the best people, even the most lovable people. After time, it's like the things I thought were so cute about you now annoy me. Like, and what I thought was just kind of a fun little part of your personality now drives me certifiably insane. And so it's like the starting place should be, Jesus, today I need your power to love your son to love your daughter. Um, the guy who did my wedding was actually my father-in-law. And I, I'm, I, I'll never forget that moment of like, I'm promising God and I'm promising you, her father, to love her and to clothe myself. We, we, we read verses for our marriage out of Colossians 3, clothe yourselves with compassion, with gentleness. And I'm, I'm saying this right in front of my now father-in-law. Oh, wow. And yet, it was such a powerful thing because it's like, I do promise you. Yeah. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. But God, with your strength, with the Holy Spirit inside me, I can do this what's by the, your grace. Yeah. Adam, what's the one thing you do that just drives Becky crazy? 
So I'm a little bit of a, a crazy man when it comes to ideas. I get an idea, and five seconds later, I'm trying to implement it. And because okay. of that, I, I have old cars and chickens in my backyard and fish in my kitchen. It's, uh, I get random ideas, and then I go for them. She's been kind of warning me now that the book is releasing. She's like, okay, we're not going to do anything new anytime soon. She's like kind of been saying that and I'm slowly starting to understand what she's saying, but I'm still struggling. I'm like, do you want me to do more new things? Is that what you mean when you say no new things? <laughs> so, That's funny. Pray for her. Pray I will. Her. I'll pray for you and happy anniversary. Thanks uh, for doing the show again. Your book comes out on the 25th. Let's do one more bonus round where we talk one more time and maybe you can get me a couple copies I can give out to listeners. That sounds great. Awesome. Thank you so much. Adam Weber's been my guest. And his book is Love Has a Name, Learning to Love the Different, the Difficult, and Everyone Else. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Hour 2 is just ahead. We've got our Salvation Summer Salvation Series continuing with Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself. Our special guest today is Lee Strobel. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.